morning. All right. Well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 today. A couple other verses, but that's going to be our main section that we're going to be in. Acts chapter 17. And once you get to chapter 17, we're going to look at verse 16. This is sometimes called uh, Paul on, on Mars Hill. Uh, the Greek Greeks had a different name for it. That would be the Roman name for it. The Greeks had a different name for it. I'm going to start off in verse 16 here. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, he's referring to, so right before this it says, Paul's waiting for Timothy and uh, other traveling companions to catch up with him in Athens. So it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Entitled my message this morning is Greatly Distressed. And let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this word. Lord, above all, the best thing that could come out of this is that it does what you want it to do, Lord. Accomplishes what you want and that you're pleased, Lord. That's what I that's what I pray, Lord. You be pleased with this word, that you speak this and have it has its impact that you desire, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message is Greatly Distressed. So Paul is waiting in Athens and he is greatly distressed to see the city is full of idols. So I looked that up in the Greek. And it says, as we're saying, greatly distressed. It, the Greek really kind of says his spirit was being provoked. It was provocative. It was something. It was. It was almost like being, um, almost like being attacked, being provoked to a fight. To we we can say troubled. We can say distressed. But this this was. He was very upset. And it's it's Athens. This is during. I use some terms here to clear to. I'm going to clarify them at the beginning. When I say a Greco-Roman period of time, so the Romans were in charge, but a lot of the culture was Greek. So the Greeks preceded the Romans. The Greeks, Alexander the Great, and all of that conquered a whole bunch of the world, and a whole bunch of them are Greek culture. And the Romans came in behind them a few hundred years later. And they kind of reconquered a lot of that land, and you have you have Romans, but they are largely Greek culture. And we call that Greco-Roman. Nice fancy term for you to know. And it's Athens. It's the capital of the of ancient Greece. There's all kinds of temples, and eh, so what? It's a bunch of idols, a bunch of temples. Kind of like, eh, what do you expect? When it says though city was full of idols, there's a variety of ways you can interpret that and translate that. In the Greek it says wholly given over to idols or utterly idolatrous. More than just there were some idols there. Everything was completely given over to these idols. Completely idolatrous. And I want to talk about a little bit today. So recently, and if you if you're on social media, you're probably tired of hearing about this because, quite frankly, I am. 
But at the Grammys this year, there was a song, a performance, a big thing that was very much, it was called Unholy, and it was very much, very satanic looking. People dressed up as demons, very demonic looking. And the whole thing is the artist is protesting being rejected by the church, saying, you're calling my lifestyle sinful and unholy, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna wear that title. I'm going to embrace what you're what you're labeling me as. And it was it was very weird. I didn't even watch the whole thing. It was very weird. And my social media blows up with angry people in the church, so outraged, so upset that this was on television. Can't believe this. Can't believe we're seeing this in our culture. Greatly distressed, or or at least offended, and subsequently, as the days have gone on, various comments and debates and all of this, you have people saying, "It's not that big a deal. It's just a song. It's just a just an artist." And you have people saying, "It's a huge deal. This is this is awful. I'm so angry. I want to boycott." The network, and I want to boycott all the people involved, and I want and I want to silence these people. And I'm not going to focus a whole lot on that song. That artist is just an opening example. I hear this oftentimes. Um, seems like every recent Super Bowl halftime show, I get the same. My the social media blows up the same way. We're so offended at the culture. So there's a lot of angry, a lot of angry church people. So offended at what they're seeing, so upset by it, and I get it. I and you got these two camps. You got the one that's not that big a deal, and you got the one that's a very big deal. But then you got the group that I approach that I'm hoping to communicate today, because I think it's going to be scriptural. Are we really that shocked that sinners sin? If lost people do lost things, are we really that shocked? Should we be that shocked? How should we respond? We can get angry. We can say, I want to boycott. We, I want to punish them for showing their sin. Should we do that, though? So I saw yesterday the movie out, Jesus Revolution. And I am a usually a hypercritical. My usual position with a lot of popular Christian movies is people get super excited, and I'm just like, eh, yeah, okay, I'm under, underwhelmed, not impressed, hypercritical. That's usually me. Uh, it's been a while since a movie had an impact on me the way that one did. I, that was that was really good. Seeing uh, Jesus Revolution yesterday. Uh, I was impressed, and I'm, I'm hard to impress when it comes to Christian movies, but I was. There's a point where, you know, preacher holds up, and I, I couldn't believe, I'm watching this yesterday, I've been working on this message from way, since way before yesterday, but he holds up you know, a Time magazine at his time, this is the late 60s, and the pastor is holding up a Time magazine saying, is God dead? And he's, he and his little church are just outraged over what's going on in the culture. I thought, boy, that is such a perfect example from what I'm trying to talk about today. We're outraged, offended about what's going on in our culture, but how should we actually respond according to Scripture? 
And I want to point out from the very beginning, we've kind of got our work cut out for us because we're at a point in our society that we're not used to being in. Now, I've talked this. I've talked on this before. I won't rehash all of it. But you look at an organization like Gallup that does surveys. They're famous for the past eighty years doing a very high, a very um, high end surveying. And from when they started in the late 30s all the way to the year 2000, the United States, you expect to see, it, it ebbs and flows a little bit, but church attendance, belonging to church membership, church attendance in the United States, between 70 and 76% over those years. Not a whole lot of fluctuation. And when you hit 2000 and you hit from 2000 to 2021 and you watch it drop to 47%. Less than half, which it has never been in the past previous 80 years. And for a generation, for those that grew up in an American culture that was three-fourths church attenders and now less than half, that can be pretty shocking. I don't recognize, there's a lot of people in the church who say, I don't recognize this American culture anymore. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand what I see on TV anymore. Put a little more perspective. I know I'm throwing out a lot of numbers, but bear with me. When you're dealing with the millennials and Generation Z, now I'm an early millennial. Pretty well anybody born after 1981 is a millennial up until around late 90s, and then it hits Generation Z. Church membership, church attendance, 36%. So if you have an older generation, baby boomers, even Generation X, and I'm sorry to call you that, but hey, I'm about, I'm about to turn 40 and I'm a millennial, so there you go. Uh, when you've, you're used to 70% being churched and you flip over to only a third churched, that, that can be pretty shocking. We're not used to that in our culture. So when you have somebody coming from that point of view and saying, and you see they see something on TV as shocking as what they uh, they as some of the performances that are now on TV, and say, I, I don't recognize that. You know, I you grew a lot grew up with television where you had even if it wasn't overtly Christian, you still had a lot of biblical ideas in TV that you not you don't have at all. And how how do you relate to that? How do we respond? And honestly, what I see, and I have a variety of different age groups on my social media that I look at and follow, and I've seen a lot of anger, a lot of fear, the term satanic panic that goes around when people see something looks demonic and they they are so upset, but a lot of it is let's huddle in our little Christian groups and let's talk about how bad it is. Let's join our little online Christian conversations, talk about how bad it is, how afraid we are, how angry we are, what can we do to boycott, what, we, what can we do to punish. And what I don't hear is, hey, let's, let's get together and pray for our nation. Maybe we should fast for our nation. Maybe we should do, how, how are we doing at sharing the gospel with, neighbors and our coworkers and our 
I don't hear that a lot from the church much, and that concerns me. I'm more concerned about how the church is responding than what the world is doing. That actually bothers me more. Because if all of we do all we do is get together with like-minded people and condemn some other group, how's that any different than the world? That's what the world does all the time. Get in my little like-minded group and, and bash someone else. If we can't offer something different than what the world's offering, well we got we really got a problem. And it's not their fault. That becomes our problem. So let's dig into it. Yeah, okay, I've laid out a problem now. This would be a pretty sad sermon if I didn't offer some sort of solution. So let's start digging into some solution. So in Acts 17, Paul's greatly distressed by the world's sin that he's seeing. Let's see what he does about it. So while Paul is waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. What did he do? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Paul's solution, I'm going to go to synagogues, not not the church, mind you. So these are Jewish synagogues. These, These are not Christian churches, but they are people who want God. They're seeking God, and there's God-fearing Greeks. Those are people, non-Jewish people, Gentiles, but they are of Greek culture, and but they want to know God. So he goes to the people who want to know God, and he tells them, the, shares reasons with them, gives them the gospel. But then he also, in the marketplace, day by day. So... We know Paul was a tent maker. He was active. He had he supported himself in the marketplace. So at his workplace, he's talking to people. He's reasoning with people. Is he condemning, or is he reasoning with with people? I like to highlight that. And it's interesting. He's talking to, uh, and don't take this the wrong way. I'm all, I'm all for passing out things door-to-door and inviting people in, but I find it interesting. It doesn't really mention he went door-to-door a whole lot. He interacted primarily with people he was already in contact with. He went into synagogues where they, he could already address them as a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He could already talk to them that way. And then he's interacting with people who happen to be in, in the marketplace. He's interacting with Sometimes it's more comfortable to try to witness to strangers because if they reject you, you can just walk away. But it's more effective to witness to people that actually know you in your workplace or your neighbors. But it's not as comfortable. It's uncomfortable to witness to people around you. They may reject you and then you still have to interact with them. But it's more effective that way. Paul didn't do, it doesn't say anything about Paul ran to his Christian friends and started talking about, look how bad Athens is. Can't stand these Greeks and all their idols. Doesn't say anything about that. Continuing on verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. What is this babbler trying to say? And then others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
So they took him to a meeting place. I should pronounce the uh, Areopagus, apparently. Areopagus. This is a place they got together and talked about ideas. So they bring him to the to the Areopagus, and they say, may we know what is this new teaching that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. I know it's shocking to us to try to witness to our, our own culture that doesn't know the Lord all that much anymore, but Paul had a way worse. He was in it. Considering, you know, talk about being outnumbered, talking about being, trying to talk to a culture that doesn't understand God anymore or what you're saying, he, he had it way worse than us. And whatever shocking things we might see in our culture, the way the Greeks did things, the Greeks, it seemed, the Greeks popularized sexual sins in their idol worship that would just shock us. Paul was not some, not some wimpy guy easily shocked. Athens troubled him. He had already seen this type point in his ministry. He had seen some weird stuff, and Athens bothered him. So you know Athens was bad because he had seen some things. So all the Athenians, it says in verse 21, the Athenians and the foreigners lived there, spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This, the Areopagus was like their social media. This is where we come and we talk about stuff. When I try to, when I try to think about what, what would uh, the early church have done with social media, this is where I tend to look, actually. This is where, oh, this is the place you got together and talked about stuff. Okay, well, this is... This is their version of their social media. He stands up in the meeting says, People of Athens, I can see in every way that you're very religious. I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He starts off, and I... Some people might take ignorant the wrong way, but he's, he's, he's not wrong. He's telling them, I think it comes across a little better in the Greek, but he's telling them, I want, I want to introduce you to that unknown God that you've got an altar to. Interestingly, uh, several years ago, Tracy and I visited the Parthenon uh, replica in Nashville, Tennessee, full-size exact replica of the Parthenon from Athens, and talked to the tour guide People, they have some people that work there that are very knowledgeable stuff, and they start telling us they just they some recent findings of this altar that was off to the side of the Parthenon that was not just any little old thing; it was pretty significant. But it's it's inscriptions and everything. The other thing they're learning about it was it was to an unknown god, and I believe that that's exactly what Paul had noticed, and it wasn't just. Well, some little thing here. They they real they had a it was apparently it was a pretty big deal. Have this altar to this unknown God, and Paul says, "Hey, I'm going to use that to help relate to you what I'm saying." He goes on. He talks through. I'm not going to read all the verses. I recommend you do though. Talks about a God who made the heavens and the earth. He doesn't live in temples. And as you're reading, as I'm reading through this, it's pretty shallow theology. Actually, if you went through, it's a very pretty simple message. He gets to this part in verse twenty-eight. Says, "In Him we live and move and have our being, 
as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul's quoting some of their own poets and his his own offspring. You know, we kind of know what being a child of God is, but you know, some of this theology is not quite. He's not he's not quoting the Old Testament. He's not using the Torah. He's not doing the he's not doing the he's not using like he's not throwing scripture at him. What's he doing here? And I love it because it kind of ch- it challenges me. There's part of me that say. Come on, Paul. You know this is this is a real simple message, and you're 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 using their own poets and trying to connect that to to God. And why aren't you using the Bible? And why aren't you? Uh, he would have had the Old Testament at that point in the Torah, but why aren't you doing that? And he's not even condemning them; he's complimenting them because they're really religious. And he's talking in, and he's relating to them in ways that they will understand. How does he know what their poets are saying if he? If not, the only way he could know that is that he's actually looked at some of what their poets are saying. Paul actually says at one point, I've become all things to all men so that I might win a few. Honestly, and and I'm speaking for myself here, I I know there's times where I've seen things, even even the movie yesterday saying, you need to be opening. You need to be really open and saying God loves everybody, and kind of. It's like, well, that just feels a little. You know, oh, you can't just say that. You gotta, you gotta stick something more to it. You gotta put other scripture in it. You gotta put theology in it. You gotta do. And it, this whole thing is challenging me a bit. Of you gotta make that. You gotta make the gospel accessible to people. You gotta talk in ways. I go, I try to, if I'm going to talk to people that I'm around, they have no background. A lot of them have no background in scripture. I can't just throw scripture at them. That's not going to mean anything to them. They don't know that. And we're used to, a lot of us in the church, somebody like myself grown up in the church, or you've, or you're of a generation that most of America was churched. That can be challenging. Yeah, we kind of have to think through this. What's this going to look like? How do you talk to somebody that doesn't know doesn't know the Bible? Paul's solution was: If you're Greek, I'm going to talk to you in the very with the. I'm going to use the Greek poets that you know. I'm going to use those to help you understand who God is, and I'm going to have to start off on something so basic that God is not an idol that lives in a, a stone building. He's not made of gold and silver, but he's an actual being, and he's just explaining these pretty simple things. That's exactly where they were at. They didn't know the Torah. These are Greeks. They didn't know that. They didn't know the Old Testament. He continues on. He tells them that there's a... For sake of time, I'm not going to read all of it. I do recommend you read all through it, but I want to stay focused on the main point. He gets to the point of talking about Jesus being raised from the dead, and some a lot of them sneer at at him. And when he, but some want to hear more. He gets a variety of reactions. Some people are like, "This is ridiculous." Some are, "I don't quite get it, but I want to hear more." And then some, it even names them at the end, are, "Yeah, we believe. We believe this. We accept." And you say, "Well." I've actually heard 
minister or, or a speaker or minister criticized Paul and say he didn't get very much results out of this. Sometimes you don't. You can't force people to accept the gospel. You can do your best, and you get you may get a couple, and you may have some that are at least interested and want to hear more. And sometimes that's all you get. You don't necessarily win the whole group, but at all at once. But what he didn't do, what he did do really interests, really catches my attention, and what he didn't do really catches my attention. Because you don't see him condemning the world. You don't see him, I think there's a church mindset. You expect him to step up there and say, you lousy Greeks and Athenians are terrible and you're all going to hell and look what you've done to all these idols and you're looking for, you're expecting this like fire brimstone raging message and you, here you have, hey, I, I've been looking at what you guys are doing and I see you're very religious. I see you have this unknown God and I want to tell you about him. Well, that's awful. That's, that's really approachable. That's very reasonable. <laughs> you could actually get somebody interested talking to him like that. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians. Here, and I want to give you a question that I want to answer, or at least I want to ponder. Is the American church, and hear me carefully when I say this, is the American church telling the world? Because you know what? All that social media interaction, there's unbelievers all over that that are seeing church people so angry at what they're seeing on TV. There's unbelievers seeing that. Isn't the fact, let's ponder that for a second, that particular artist saying the church has rejected me and this is this is why I'm doing this song and why I'm doing this dance and these choreographies, I'm, I'm accepting the label the church has put on me. What an opportunity for the church to respond and say, no, let's clarify sin is sin. But God loves you, and the reason we have a problem with your sin is because that's hurting you. And we want, and God loves you, and we love you. And we don't want you to hurt, be hurt by your sin. Instead, that's not what a lot of what's being said in public. A lot of it is, I'm outraged. This is this this rage. Is the American church telling the world, we don't care that you're going to hell? Just keep your sin out of, out of our face. Keep your sin private. We don't care what happens to you. Just keep your sin private so we don't have to look at it. I hope we're not. I, I can tell you if if that's the point that a lot of the American church is at, that's a point God's going to have to correct us on pretty harshly. We're not going to succeed in reaching the lost with that kind of attitude. Of just keep your sin secret, and we don't care what happens to you. We just don't want to see it. There was a group that was that was like that. And they were called the Pharisees. And Jesus had some pretty harsh things to say about them. They were very good at insulating themselves from the world's sin. They were not good at reaching people. We'll circle back to that in a second. But I want to clarify what Paul says. What what did Paul really write about when it came to looking at the world, judging the world? 1 Corinthians 5 In verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter 
not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy, swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. Don't even eat with such person. In verse 12, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Paul's writing there in context, there's a pretty egregious sin that's happened in the church, and he is confronting it, and he's clarifying, hey, look, this is a church problem. I'm not telling you to, I'm telling you to not associate with that church person to expel them from your church because of the sin that they're engaged in not repenting of. He says, I, don't, I never meant for you to not associate with people in the world that are, in, that are uh, sinners that are sinning, because if I told you that, you'd have to leave this world. You wouldn't be able to. Who would you, you know, if you're not associating with sinners because of their sin, who, how would you ever, you'd have to escape this planet to not, to not do that. He never said to avoid sinners in the world. He said you judge, you judge those inside the church. You don't judge those outside. That right there is rather, I like to remind myself of that verse some because that's kind of shocking in a lot of church culture to say, wait a minute, does the Bible really say that? We don't, we're not really supposed to judge those outside the church. We, we need to be very conscious of sin. We need to call sin, sin. I know we love to say that in a lot of church circles. We need to call sin, sin. That's great. When you're inside the church, you definitely need to be very hard on sin inside the church. But outside the church, they need to know that God loves them. And if we as the church, we say, Jason, you don't understand. We need to, we need to condemn that sin in the world. Well, I've, I've spent my whole life in church. I've heard that a lot. Isn't that how we got in the mess that we're in with less than 50% of of our country in church. I typically hear, well, it's because the church is not calling sin, sin. Perhaps, but I've grown up my whole life in church. I've heard very strongly condemning sin in the world. It's usually condemning other people's sin. It's condemning, it's condemning the sin in the world and being soft on the church. That's our real problem, is flipping it around, doing the opposite of what Scripture says. I don't know that the that the world thinks we're all that soft on sin. They tend to get, they tend to feel like we reject them. That's how we got in this mess in the first place. We need to do what Paul's saying here for to win the lost. And I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here pretty soon, Ryan. If you want to get ready, uh, closing song. Do I want to read? I'm going to. Get to the end here. Matthew chapter 9. This sums it up. This is this is the heart that I want to, this is the challenge that I want to get to and the heart that I want to get to. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Remember, these are these are the teachers of the law, and God Himself has come in flesh, and they are surprised by His behavior. And that should be a warning to us right off the bat. They thought they knew God, and then God shows up, and they go, "I don't understand. He's too. He's he's. Why is He welcoming these these sinners?" On hearing this, and I find it, Pharisees ask his disciples, but Jesus doesn't even give them a chance to answer. He's, he's going to answer this one. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is quoting Hosea 6 there where it says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So I start reading Hosea 6, and it says in there, in the context, there's actually a verse that says, like a band of robbers, the, the priest wait for a victim. It compares the priests of that time in Hosea like a band of marauders that are waiting to vict- victimize somebody. And I got to ask the tough question, are we waiting for the world to mess up so that we can condemn them? Are we sitting there waiting to waiting to pounce on the world when they mess up? Like a like a group of robbers looking for a victim. And before you answer that, you say, "No, Jason, of course not." Why does my social media blow up every time there's some there's public sin? Public, a public display of sin triggers my social media to explode with angry church people. I can't help but say we need to be careful that we don't resemble that that group of priests that are, act like a band of robbers waiting for somebody, waiting to trap someone. And I'm just going to wrap this up with this question, building on we just tell the world to keep your sin out of our face, but we don't actually care what happens to you. Is if you had the cure to a horrible disease, Jesus refers to there as sick people are the ones that need a doctor, not healthy people. If you had the cure to a horrible disease, would you keep it to yourself and blame the sick people for being sick? We have the good news. We have the cure to the worst thing ever, which is eternal death. And we carry the cure, the eternal life, the best thing, the best cure for the worst thing ever. And do we keep it to ourselves and say, I can't believe those people are still sick? When you're the one carrying the cure, share it with them. That's the only chance they got. I'm all for us being greatly distressed by the world's sin like Paul was. But the question is, how do we respond? To wrap up my opening statement, people say it's no big deal. People say it's a huge deal and I want to fight it. And then there's that third one that says, I'm greatly distressed by it. I want to tell them, I want to share the gospel with them. I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to give them that cure. And I'm going to try to do it in a way that they can understand. 
I'm going to try to I'm going to try to appreciate the best part of them, the part of them that it was that wants the truth. I'm going to try to speak to that. I'm going to try to share this cure with them as best I can. So I'm going to close on. I'm going to pray here. Ryan's going to worship, and we're going to let's take some challenge today. Really, just to ponder this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word, Lord, this challenge. It's a challenge to me. Lord, it's not a message that I'm preaching at people. It's something to share. I'm, I want to share with people because I'm in the same quandary, Lord. Help us, Lord, to, as Eddie was saying this morning, the more we love you, the more we'll love people. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to love, and that love is going to motivate us to get to know people and talk in a way that they can understand. Lord, instruct us, teach us how to be, how to share that cure with the sick. You're the great physician. Teach us, Lord, to administer your cure for eternal death. We thank you, Lord, for this. We ask you to speak to us, minister to us. Thank you for the opportunities, Lord, and the and Lord, your truth, your word, in Jesus' name.